I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jason Mitchell. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard University, where he directs the Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. His research uses a combination of neuroimaging and behavioral measures to investigate the cognitive processes that support inferences about the psychological states of other people and introspective awareness of the self. Jason, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. So would you describe yourself as a social neuroscientist? Yeah, that sounds right. I sort of straddle the area between social psychology and and what's known as cognitive neuroscience. So I sometimes think of myself or what I the way I think about social neuroscience is a group of people who are interested in the questions of social psychology who've managed to make some headway on those using the methods of cognitive neuroscience. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So there's this cognitive process that's known by a bunch of names. It's mind reading, mentalizing, theory of mind. All of these are pointing towards the same thing that you study, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so I've been interested in this question of theory of mind, which is how humans make sense of the mental states of other people. So how do I gain access into what you might be thinking or feeling at any given moment? Or you know, how do I make sense of your behavior? Well, we tend to do it in terms of what I think might be going on inside your head, your goals or your desires. And humans are pretty good at this in a way that other animals seem seem not to be. So we've been interested in how it is that humans are doing this and what kinds of brain regions are allowing us to do this in a way that is unique to our species. Mm -hmm. And does this overlap with empathy or are they distinct processes, knowing what you're thinking versus knowing what you're feeling? Yeah, I like to think about it by analogy to perception. So if you think about perception, you can think broadly about the problem of perception as being about getting, making, generating some kind of representation of the physical world around you. And you and I do that through lots of different strategies, right? So we use what light is coming in through our eyes or what sound waves are being modulated and coming in through our ears, sight, you know, smells and touch. And all of those, you know, are different avenues to trying to understand the physical world around us. Mm -hmm. I think humans do something like that when it comes to understanding the mental world, especially the mental world of other people. There's lots of different um, strategies I have. There's lots of different avenues, um, windows that I might get into what's happening inside your head. Um, I, and, I, and so I think there's lots of different pieces to that, right? I can understand something that is very cold and cognitive about what you're thinking, right? Would you understand the word, this word if I happen to use it, for example, right? But I could also understand something that's very warm and affective, emotional about your internal states. And we tend in English to use different words to describe those things. Um, but in my mind, they're probably different aspects of the same general challenge of trying to figure out what the mental landscape looks like around me. Right. I'm imagining one of the key differences between theory of mind and perception is the level of uncertainty, right? Because when we look at something, not only do we have multiple senses confirming it's there, but people, other people are going to perceive it more or less the same way. But other people, if they're trying to think, uh, like imagine you're playing poker and you have a really good poker face, other people might, one person might think you're bluffing, another person might not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are things in our world that we really that we that we basically all agree on an appropriate answer 
Let me put it a different way. I, I think there's there's a divide between what cognitive psychologists study and that social psychologists study that is more than just the content. I think they're actually interested. I think cognitive psychologists tend to be interested in domains where a single representation is what you're after, right? So if you think about something like a memory or a perception, as you just said, you I could be factually wrong, right? Or we would agree that I'm factually wrong about what happened yesterday or I'm factually wrong about what's actually out there. Mm -hmm. If I sort of reach out and try to grab something, right? I can be off, right? I can actually be wrong. And when I am, those things, when those moments where I'm wrong are noticeable, right? Like we disagree and it's like, oh, how can I possibly have seen this when it's really some, something else? Or if I were to reach out and try to grab that microphone and I was off by 20%, like that alone would make me worry about my, right? And I would probably mention it to my doctor. Mm -hmm. But think about the social world, right? We're, we're not after a single stable representation. Like if, if I said, hey, I think Adam's smart, seven out of 10 and other people thought no he's actually smart eight out of 10 like it wouldn't drive it wouldn't drive me crazy to think that right i would think that we're actually agreeing <laughs> in those moments where i'm off by 10 percent um so there is something very different about what happens in the social world along the lines that you're talking which is we tolerate a kind of uncertainty like we're after a cloud of answers not necessarily a single point like we are in much of what cognitive psychology studies so there, there might be two different explanations there because on one hand you could say you could assume something like there is an objective answer, but we just tolerate uncertainty. And then another perspective could be we're dealing with subjective matters. So there isn't really an objective answer and people are just doing their best to, to guess what it might be. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could imagine that. Right. I mean, think about how impossible it would be to sum you up in a single representation. Right. Um, and so I'm, I must be aware of that at some level. Right. So I'm not and I, I'm never going to be able to represent another person fully. So the best I'm going to do is get bits and pieces of it or get close-ish to a, to a, to an understanding of what is happening inside your head. And that seems to be good enough, right? I mean, the sense that that, that fuzzy representation seems to be good enough for us to get along. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there are kind of two extremes of certainty or uncertainty. On, on one hand, you have objective facts that can be measured like through perception, and that would be more on the traditionally cognitive end. And then on the more traditionally social end, you might have like, what is this other person feeling? And you genuinely might not know unless you could be inside their, their head and feeling what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And then you have things in between. I was talking with Steven Pinker recently about this idea of common knowledge, where you're not dealing with objective facts, but you're not really mentalizing either, because you're talking about things that you know other people know, and everyone sort of knows it, like... Uh, what, what might be an example of that? Like the sky is blue. It's mm -hmm. like, without actually going outside, we can talk about that and we can come to an agreement on this. So it's the, there's not necessarily this empirical way of looking at it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that it's Steve bringing this up because in a sense, language generally in general works that way, right? Like mm -hmm. you and I belong to a language community where we just agreed that the sound Apple refers to a fruit that grows around this time of year and can be red or red or green right, right? um and it feels to me like just like we've agreed to say the sky is blue is 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 a kind of semantic knowledge that we have mm -hmm. um and you're right that that does feel like it's not quite objective fact but it isn't me having to calculate it and or figure out in some ad hoc way what's happening inside a person's head at a given moment mm -hmm. right so maybe maybe that's not a great example because 
what, I, what I'm trying to get at is something where it's, you're dealing with something more subjective. So more subjective than the sky is blue, but also where you don't have to really have any level of theory of mind in order to mm. get at it. So like if someone says something really outlandish, um, like pigs can fly, you know that they're exaggerating or mm. try, trying to be funny without exactly thinking about it, right? It's, it's almost like this heuristic shortcut that you don't need to mentalize in order to realize what they're doing. Hmm. So maybe part of what you're getting at is, is a, a much deeper question about what humans are doing when they're mentalizing. So this is, this is, this, this has been a real challenge in the field to think through, okay, when I understand something about your internal states, how am I actually arriving? Sir? Or if I were to predict what you're about to do next or, you know, later today or something like that. And the field has sort of divided itself into two broad camps. So one camp, and I'm sort of, I, I guess, associated with this one, is to think that, well, even though I don't know you all that well, and I don't know exactly what you might do in a given situation, I don't have any direct access to your internal states. I do have direct access to mine. And you and I are built similar, similarly enough that I probably can use myself as a proxy. So I can think, okay, well, what would I do in that situation? Or what might I be thinking and feeling right now? And then sort of assume that you're going to be doing something or feeling something that's comparable to what's happening inside my head. Mm -hmm. And people sometimes talk about this as a kind of simulation, right? I'm kind of using myself, I'm simulating your experience on my hardware. Sometimes mm -hmm. we talk about this as projection, right? I figured out for myself and I project that onto you. But another way that you could be doing this, and some people have argued for this view, is a little bit along the lines that you're talking about is to basically use a series of heuristics or almost like a social grammar, like a set of rules about what people tend to do, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have a you could have a rule that says something like, if people say things that are that are that are just demonstrably untrue, then they must be exaggerating or right, or mistaken or joking, right? I mean, there could be just a set of rules that you're deploying to make sense of those situations. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny how how often this heuristic versus simulation is coming up. Because if you remember at the second year talks uh, a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, there was there was one student studying, I believe, intuitive physics. And the idea was you have a ball bouncing on the screen and there's sort of a target. And your goal is to uh, answer, is the ball going to enter the target? And most people, it seems like if it's if it's going to like, you know, bounce off the wall at a certain angle, you can kind of guess whether it's going to go in or not. And the idea is you're simulating it in your head. But now if there's suddenly like a, a bar in front of the target that's blocking it, people don't need to do the simulations. The idea was you have this heuristic right away that tells you it is or isn't going to go in. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I like that. And I think that's that's a, a great connection to make. I think you're right that there, this issue of the ways in which we solve problems, both by kind of simulating them almost in real time versus um, using some sort of off the shelf, semantic, quick heuristical knowledge is mm -hmm. interesting. I, I mean, I think in my own field, what has happened has been that people have sort of, as I mentioned, sort of divided into camps that want to argue that the only way that humans do that, the only way that humans solve the other mind problem is through simulation or or through these heuristics. And mm -hmm. my own sense is just as we saw in that talk that you're referring to, 
it's almost, to me, it feels likely that humans are using some combination of these things in everyday uh -huh. life. And the challenge for us is to figure out what does that combination look like, right? And how, right. Do, how do we combine that, that, those two strategies? The same thing with nature and nurture. It's like, it's always both. Which, it's always which both. one takes precedence and maybe in which situations? Uh, That's right. Which, which, is, which is a much trickier question, right? To try to answer than do you do one versus the other, right? Uh -huh. Like knowing how you combine these two things is in real time, is, is actually very difficult for us to get a handle on. So in evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, which one would come first? Would you observe people and develop these heuristics and then apply them before you truly have the idea to sort of simulate what's going on in your head? Or are you doing these simulations first and then maybe developing heuristics over a lot of time, recognizing patterns in your own thought? I don't know. It's a good question. To me, it feels like the simulation, it feels to me as though it requires some kind of recognition that I have thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And that they're different than the ones you have. Um, so there's a lot There's a lot that has to go on in order for me to do that, right? I mean, we, we know there's a lot that has to go on developmentally. Kids don't seem to understand that people's thoughts can be poor representations of reality, right? That they can actually be wrong. Kids don't seem to understand that until around their fourth birthday. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, and whereas, you know, if what I'm just trying to do is to look at the way people act and pick up regularities in their behavior, that doesn't, that may not require a kind of self-awareness or, or a kind of meta-awareness of how my own thoughts reflect reality, right? So I don't know if I had to, I don't think we know, but if I had to guess, I would suggest the heuristics might come earlier um, only because they, they seem to require less of a person. Right. So our, theory of mind and introspection, sort of the same process. And the only difference is you're projecting it at yourself in introspection and at other people in mentalizing, or are these distinct processes? You know, one of the places where neuroimaging and the methods of cognitive neuroscience have been very effective and useful is answering this kind of question. So the places where neuroimaging has have really helped psychologists, cognitive scientists answer questions is when we're not sure whether two things we're looking at are the same or if they're different. And you can get some access to the answer to that question by, by saying, look, if they're really fundamentally different, then you should see wildly different brain regions giving rise to them. And if they're not, if they're if these two things that seem different or feel different are actually relying on similar brain regions, that's at least some evidence that they're sharing some kind of processes in common. And when we've looked, when when we've looked at what the brain does as I'm making judgments about your mind, it looks a lot like what it does when I'm answering judgments about my own mind, right? So saying how intelligent am I or curious or how humorous am I looks a lot like trying to answer those questions for you, mm -hmm. right? Or if I must say asking how humorous is Adam. And so that has led us to think that there that there's something in common, right? There's something very important that is a kind of similar cognitive process going on when I'm trying to make these judgments for myself and when I'm trying to make them for other people. So, you know, whether that means they're identical, I think that's more of a stretch. I think it's very hard to answer, answer that. I mean, they're, they're clearly not in the sense that I am aware of whether I'm answering the question for myself or, or for you, but they do seem to be borrowing the same machinery um, in some important way. Is there a sort of gradient where if you're thinking about the thoughts or feelings of people that are very close to you or very similar to you, 
that it looks more like introspection compared to if you're asked to think about someone very distant from you or a stranger? Yeah. So one of the things I sort of mentioned in a really offhand way as I was talking this through was in order for me to in order for for me to use myself as a proxy for you, I have to make an, an important assumption, which is that you and I are going to respond in similar ways to the same kinds of stimuli. Right. In a sense that I'm that you're not governed by rules that are radically different than the rules I'm governed by. Right. So implicit in this use of simulation or projection is some tacit belief that you and I are similar and in some important way. And so one of the things that we we did some number of years ago was to actually manipulate whether subjects were thinking about and trying to mentalize about somebody that they thought was similar, kind of fellow traveler, another student, you know, somebody who had similar political and social views, or whether they were mentalizing about somebody who was quite dissimilar, had very different social and political views. Um, and what we find is exactly as your intuition suggests, when people are mentalizing about somebody who's quite dissimilar, they seem to be doing something that's actually very different than what they're doing when they're thinking about themselves. Um, and that stands in contrast to when they're thinking about someone similar, um, someone who's got similar social views, they seem to do something that looks a lot like what they do for themselves. What was interesting about this study is that the kinds of questions we asked people to answer had nothing to do with politics. There were questions like, how much do you think this guy likes chocolate ice cream? Right. And if I think that you and I voted for the same person and have similar social views, then I, I use myself. I sort of think that you like chocolate ice cream roughly the same amount that I do, uh -huh. um, which, which is kind of very, which is a very funny um, uh -huh. system being very promiscuous in the way that it's assuming that you and I, that I'm a good proxy for you. Right. Because right. just because you voted the same way doesn't mean that you also like chocolate. Yeah, that that seems to very illustrate this connection to social psychology because that's that's a heuristic we usually have right like I, if i'm similar to this person in one way or just if i like them i'm gonna expect that they're more similar to me whether they are or not yeah that's right um i mean in follow-up work we actually asked the question is that the right strategy to use right because you can imagine that like when i say that you like chocolate ice cream the same way that i do that i'm like wildly off and i shouldn't do that um, but it turns out that I actually am more accurate if I mm -hmm. use myself as a proxy. It turns out to be for interesting reasons. Um, well, maybe not so interesting, depending on how much you like methods and stats. But like, I, you know, I have to assume I'm an average person when it comes to most things like chocolate ice cream and doing laundry and shopping for groceries, right? Mm -hmm. And you're an average person when it comes to those things, right? On average, across all of the kinds of things that I could know about you, you're roughly average. Mm -hmm. So using myself as a proxy is good because... I, I can, uh, I'm going to come up with an answer that's actually fairly typical of the average person, and you're going to your own answers will be typical of the average person. So, how do you reconcile that with other social psychology findings that people think they're exceptional? Whether it's I'm people thinking they're more talented than average in something that maybe they're average at, or on the more negative end, like thinking you're less likely to get in an accident when texting and driving compared to other people. Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, the kinds of things we've asked are like, how much do you prefer doing laundry over grocery shopping, right? So people are making, like they're actually in that sense, probably either coming up with an answer they've thought about before, they're simulating those two things and coming up with an answer. Um, and then they, if they apply that other that answer to another person, they're fairly accurate because turns out, other people hate doing laundry just as much as I do. Uh -huh. um, I mean, I think what's what's interesting about the cases you mentioned are that 
they're trying to get people to do these kind of funny estimations, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, are you scale from one to 100? Like, how likely are you to get in an accident? Or and, maybe, and so maybe part of the problem is that uh -huh. people aren't great at like actually estimating these kinds of probabilities to begin with. And they're struggling then when when they have to apply them to other people. I, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh -huh. I need to think more about that. It, it's cool that you mentioned that sometimes when people answer their they're almost like giving a pre-simulated answer. Like you, you can kind of see that on this podcast when when you ask a question that's sort of like a standard question mm -hmm. that that you might get asked in, in doing this type of research versus other times there's like a longer pause and it's it's something you have to think about a little bit more. Right, right. Yeah, we, we you know, there, there are definitely questions that you answer without even thinking about, right? Like what's your favorite color? Like I just, I've pre-compiled that, that answer, right? It's blue and, but there are other, and, we, and we've tried to come up with, questions that people can't do that on where they actually do have uh -huh. to sort of think it through like how much more how much more do you like laundry over grocery shopping right uh -huh. or um where you've probably never thought about those two together and you really do have to kind of compare them against each other in your mind right. do you think this is related again to that idea of like heuristic thought versus simulation thought yeah i think that's exactly right because for certain things that feel like what I described as pre-compiled, right? You don't actually have to do anything in real time. You just pluck out an answer that's that feels to me almost like semantic knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas for these unusual, these more unusual situations, I think you actually do have to do something that feels like it takes time and that requires some kind of running through something that is like what it would feel like if I actually had to do laundry. Uh huh. So then. It, are those brain activation differences you mentioned when thinking about the thoughts of people who are more similar to you versus dissimilar to you? Does it mean that when you're, it's more of a shorthand pre-compiled answer when you're thinking about people more similar and that you're engaging in like more true mentalizing when thinking about someone more distantly related? No, it's funny. I actually had the op the opposite sense that like that what I do for the person who's similar to me is I do actually simulate almost my own answers and then uh -huh. apply those. When I'm thinking about someone dissimilar, my guess is that I'm borrowing. I mean, I could be doing a number of things, but I think I just, I have certain stereotypes about what people who belong to different groups might be like, um, or I just, you know, I have some theory about how people in general acts and I just assume that's mm -hmm. true for you that I that I do it in some way that feels more I don't want to say shallow but more like what you're describing mm -hmm. as a heuristic right so is this difference in, in brain activation is it like a difference in magnitude in the same regions or is it different regions lighting up so like everything in imaging it's everything's relative <laughs> so right it's both but what you can what you can do is to say look where are there are regions that are respond responding when I think about these questions for myself. And then you can basically show that in those regions, you can't really tell whether the person is thinking about him or herself or thinking about a similar other, right? The brain region looks from, you know, this kind of activation level to be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's doing something very different in um, when thinking about dissimilar others. You can also then ask the questions, well, then where in the brain are these, like, is there more activation for dissimilar others? And we find what we do is we find brain regions that are like 
you know, geographically, like neuroanatomically distinct from the ones that are doing this for similar others. We don't actually, I mean, the next question, of course, you want to know the answer to is, okay, what are those brain regions, this, like these other brain huh. regions doing? Well, let me tell you what I'm thinking, and then you can yeah. tell me if this matches the actual data. I'm imagining that it might be more effective for, for either introspection or people similar to you. So maybe you're using more emotional brain regions and you don't have to think about it so much cognitively. But then if you're thinking about someone less similar to you, maybe you have to uh, like you use more prefrontal cortex regions, thinking about the uncertainty and like making certain assumptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I think that's, that's, that's partway there. So one of the brain regions that care that seems to care a lot about this kind of introspective processes is a region that we call the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. It's sort of not quite the orbital frontal cortex. It's a little more dorsal than that. And those regions care about answering these questions for self and for similar others. And then what we find in these studies is that a much more dorsal region of the medial prefrontal cortex seems to be active when people are thinking about dissimilar others. We've also done some work looking at stereotypes. Like if I you know, and making estimates about how much someone might want to shop for shoes, right? And I have to make those judgments about women so that I can deploy kind of stereotypic knowledge. And those more dorsal regions are also seem to be, play a role in kind of accessing or applying this kind of stereotypic knowledge. Mm -hmm. So in our sense, like, I, I think if you can, you can think of stereotypes as a kind of heuristic. Um, so maybe all of this is consistent with your view that, or, you know, what you're suggesting, which is when I'm faced with this dissimilar other, I might kind of pluck more heuristic or pre-compiled knowledge from my brain as opposed to actually simulating it in real time. Mm -hmm. So thus far, it sounds like we've been talking about mentalizing for relatively arbitrary choices. Have you done any research looking at things that are more consequential, like whether there are different moral judgments, for example, when it comes to thinking about someone who's more similar or dissimilar to you, or just, just thinking about others more generally, how that might connect to moral psychology? Honestly, we haven't really looked at these kinds of questions because of course, the, you know, what you would be interested in is all of the downstream consequences that, you know, if it's the case that even from, from even on things like ch chocolate ice cream, I'm doing something different for people who I deem dissimilar from me, right? You imagine that when the stakes get much higher, that might be exacerbated, right? If now it's about who to share resources with or who to save from a runaway trolley or, right, or, or how much to change policy to accommodate or to address other, other people's concerns. Yeah, you would imagine that these things could be really magnified in those in those more high stakes situations. We we haven't done that 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 kind of work directly. Um, so yeah, so I don't I don't have anything to say from my own work on those questions. Okay, I'll pivot to, to something quite different then. Yeah. How does this apply when we're thinking about things or people that are very dissimilar? So like not just a person who has different political views or a different background from you, but like maybe you're thinking about animals or just animated objects. Like, you know, you're watching the Cars movie and uh, <laughs> he loses the race. And this is like a car that literally has eyes like sort of glued onto the top, but you you can empathize with that. Right. Even, even though the, even though the entity is in fact so different, right. I mean, it's not even, it's not, it's an inanimate object effectively. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, one of the things that I think is is interesting about the way our social minds work is I, I, my own sense is that it's actually like our, our social minds are not actually that tied to the perception of other people. Uh-huh. Like, like when I think about someone I'm familiar with, I don't necessarily represent the person physically. I certainly don't represent what the person's wearing or right. But I do have some sort of nebulous, like sense of what that person's like. It's hard to put it into words because it's, doesn't have sensory qualities uh-huh so my my under my, like my 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 guess is that even when we're watching cars or you know these hyder and simul type displays where there's geometric shapes moving about that really like i'm i'm actually kind of almost seeing through the physical stuff and i'm seeing some underlying quality there that we might describe as mental states or you know kind of social aspects of, uh-huh. of the entities if you, if you don't mind exploring, I want to try and get at what that underlying quality might be. So here's here's yeah. um, an example. If you asked me to think about or describe what it's like to be a monkey, I think mm. I would draw a blank. That sounds mm. very difficult. But you might be familiar with Franz de Waal's famous experiment looking at fairness in monkeys. And what he does is you have two monkeys in a lab and one of them, actually both of them, they're doing some simple game. So like they're ex- they're grabbing a rock from a bucket or something and they're exchanging the rock to the experimenter and then they get a treat for it. And one monkey will receive cucumbers and he's perfectly happy exchanging the rocks and eating the cucumbers. If you give a monkey next to him grape instead of a cucumber, which is a much better snack, suddenly the first monkey gets very angry and he starts shaking at the cage. And then if you ask me, what does it feel like to be that monkey? I can tell you exactly. I'm like, he's jealous. This is unfair. So there, there's something about experiencing, I don't know if it's jealousy in this particular instance or like an emotion that you can pinpoint that allows you to maybe relate to an animal that you, or just a person that you couldn't ordinarily do that with. You you might draw a blank. Yeah, that's interesting. Wait, Adam, can we take a 30 second break? Sure. Is that okay? Okay. So the question is, there's some nebulous quality or set of qualities that allow us to mentalize in some situations, but not others. I generally can't think what it's like to be a monkey. But in the case of this particular jealous monkey who was treated wrongly by being given cucumbers instead of grapes, I can empathize with him. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, everything that we're doing in, I shouldn't say everything, but a large amount of what we're doing as we are mentalizing and engaging with other people socially is assuming that others, you know, roughly see and experience the world the same way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, and so I, I, I'm, a, I'm guessing that what happens in this monkey case is that you're, you, you do have an implicit assumption that, that your anger and the monkey's anger somehow f- are similar, right? That they, uh-huh. and, and you might think, okay, well, there's good scientific reasons for that, right? Like it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, anger and these responses evolved long before there were primates, right? And so it's likely that we share the, these, these common um, experiences. I mean, so we the interesting you know, thing is I'm not yeah. usually thinking about that. I'm not usually thinking, oh, monkeys and humans evolved. We're both primates. We're so similar in these ways. So I should be able to think about them. Most of the time, I'm like, I have no idea what it's like to be a monkey. 
I mean, the thing, the way it feels to me is a lot like what it feels like to engage with children, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when, when a child is upset, I feel like I can understand that the child's upset or anger is something that's reminiscent of my upset or anger. But if I put the child in front of some Renaissance artwork, I'm pretty, you know, some four-year-old, I'm pretty sure that the, that the child doesn't understand it the same way that I do, right? And we're really good at this. Um, like we have, a, we have a tacit understanding that there's just knowledge and therefore experiences that one is unlikely to have at certain developmental stages. Like when you describe the monkey, it feels like I just, I, I basically do that, but I just substitute a monkey for, for a child, right? Uh, right, without, without re- recognizing the, you know, the phylogenetic similarity right i am i am aware that there's something that is shared in one case and not in the other Mm -hmm. so then it sounds like your ability to mentalize or to relate to someone in a particular situation depends on whether you've experienced something similar in the past is that right you mean you mean you're asking because of the anger part like because i've experienced anger before because you've experienced anger before, or in the case of the child, because you've been a child before um, and you know things about children, you can understand what it's like. So the idea is, like, is there any pure form of theory of mind where you can understand something that you have no uh, no prior knowledge of? Or is it is it essentially using prior knowledge for everything in order to understand um, what other people might be thinking? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. Like, it is is my ability to really understand what's going on inside your mind predicated on my having had that experience at, at all myself? This is kind of related to this hmm. philosophical question of whether, in order to have a mental representation of something, you need experiences of like its constituent parts. Like, is it possible to imagine a unicorn if you haven't had prior exposure to horses or horns? And then this is just like one level further where it's saying, is it possible to imagine someone else imagining a unicorn if you haven't experienced horses or horns? Right, so so you could ask a very different question. So the question you're asking is like, what are the nature of these representations, right? Or the nature of the cognitive processes that that are subserving theory of mind, which I think are exactly the kinds of questions that cognitive scientists want to answer. There's another kind of question you could ask though, which is, what do I need to do to get, what do I need to do to navigate the social world appropriately? Um, and, and, and those things actually, when you start asking it that way, you actually realize that you don't have to do nearly as much as you might imagine. So I'll just give you an example that's not about theory of mind as such, but about language. So for a long time, when my son was younger, he was talking, he'd spend a long time talking about ninjas. He was very excited about ninjas and he would like, creep around like a ninja. And at some point, I, and, and we went months talking about ninjas. And then at some point I asked him like, well, what's a ninja? And he described the ninja as being a very tiny fairy who's very quiet and sneaks around and wears and wears black, right? So he he clearly had no idea what you and I mean by a ninja, a ninja right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he used the word in such a way that it that he he got away like like he got away with this lack of knowledge, right? Because of just the pragmatics of what it is we were discussing. Um, so did he know what a ninja was? Like did he no? But he but he got by with whatever knowledge he he did actually have. And so I wonder if like that's actually one way to think about what we are trying to do when we interact with other people, right? We're not actually trying to come up with like it's not important that I have a veridical 
understanding of your of what's happening inside your head. I've got to come up with an answer that is actually useful, right? right. For for whatever purpose I'm you and I are engaging in right now. Uh-huh. And the, and those are not, and those could be the, the the solution to one could be the solution to the other, but I'm not sure it always has to be. Uh-huh. So what explains individual differences in how successful you actually are at predicting others' thoughts? Like when you call someone intuitive or an empath. I mean, one thing that we find is the, the kinds of indi- individual differences you see on these sort of social tasks are pretty underwhelming. So, mm-hmm. so what it turns out to be very hard to do is to create stimu- a stimulus set or, or a task where subjects routinely get it wrong about what another pe- person is thinking or feeling. I mean, they can be mm-hmm. off by degrees, but they it's very hard to come up with stimuli where people are just wrong about the answers, um, which I think is itself interesting, right? I mean, in part because, I mean, it, it raises a whole host of methodological questions, like what counts as a right answer when you're saying how happy somebody is, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think it also just points to the fact that, like, you can get, you, most of us can get into the cloud of reasonable answer uh-huh. without difficulty. Uh, so that seems to suggest then that it's it's not, a lack of skill, but it's just that when we're better, it's probably because this person is closer to us or more similar to us that we're able to better predict their feelings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, all that said, I mean, it does feel like there are people who, you know, you would have an easier time sitting next to on an airplane and other people who would be more difficult travel companions, right? In terms of just making conversation or feeling like they're listening to you. Um, I don't know that we've got a good understanding of why some people are Bill Clinton who feels your pain and makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world for the five minutes you're talking to him and why there are other people who don't. Um, I, I'm not sure if that is a capacity issue, right? Like he just has capacities that you and I don't, or if it's kind of the capacity is there, but it's being deployed in different ways. We're not really sure. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a, that's a pretty unsatisfying answer, I know, but I don't know that we're there yet. So what would happen if you gave the same type of task, but told people that uh, the person in question was like an inverted human. So like they feel pleasure when someone would ordinarily feel pain or they feel pain when someone would ordinarily feel pleasure. Presumably, once you give them that rule and you say like, this person is shocked, you would be able to apply the rule and say, therefore, they're happy. Um, But I'm wondering what would happen in the brain when you have to think like that. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're right. You could, that person is sort of in a sense, maximally dissimilar from me, right? Uh-huh. So one, the our data and, and those of other people suggest that you should do something that is highly, highly heuristic and doesn't involve yourself at all. On the other hand, in this case, it turns out that using myself as a proxy is a great way to get the right answer, right? Because I can come up with the answer myself and then just multiply it by negative yeah. one, right? Invert it. Um, so I don't know, we've never done that work, but that would be, that's an interesting case. What are you currently working on in your lab? So there's a number of things that we've been, um, that we've been working on. A a lot of where we've turned our energy is looking at, um, sort of kind of in a way, the sort of deeper representations that might subserve social thought. So, you know, one of the things, one of the innovations in neuroimaging over the last 10 years or so 
is rather than look at big blobs of the brain and say, okay, in one task, blobs A and B are active, and in this other task, blobs B and C are active, right? So that's giving us some evidence that different things are going on. What we've been able to do is to actually say, like, within a particular brain region that really cares about, let's say, faces, can you actually show that there are different patterns within that brain region that are um, that are all similar when you see faces of the, uh, you know, when you see George Clooney's face and that are very different when you see Amal Clooney's face, right? And this gives you some sense that, okay, something here is being kind of represented differently within a brain region. Uh-huh. And so we've been sort of trying to capitalize on some of these, um, these methodological innovations to ask some questions that social psychologists have been interested in, especially around stereotypes and viewing outgroup members. So mm-hmm. one of the things that many people will be familiar with is something called the outgroup homogeneity effect. It's the sense that people who are part of the outgroup kind of all quote look alike, right? Or it's hard, it's harder to tell. You're more likely to confuse somebody who's an outgroup member with another person who's in that same outgroup. And mm-hmm. what we've been showing is that part of the reason is that within brain regions that really seem to care about face face identification and whose face am I looking at, that the actual patterns, like the actual voxel by voxel patterns are just better at separating members of one's own in-group. Like the representations of this person who's part of my in-group and this other person who's part of my in-group look really different. Like it's really hard to confuse them. Whereas when I'm looking at the faces of out-group members, the the very patterns within these face specific regions are very hard to tease apart. Like it's hard to train a machine to know that those are different patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So even at the level of kind of just the basic facial identification, it turns out to be difficult to separate those representations. Is there something special about social in-group out-group going on here? Or is it is it more like a proxy for familiarity? Like I probably can't tell a whole bunch of birds apart, but a bird watcher who's been doing it for years can tell them apart. Right. So so one way that you so one thing that's interesting, we haven't done this work yet, but this is the next place to go, is the outgroup homogeneity effect is stronger for majority group members, right? Who you might imagine are less familiar at looking at outgroup members' faces. Members who are part, people who are part of minoritized groups are actually used to seeing the faces of majority group members, and they don't find it as difficult to tell those people, you know, people from the from the majority group apart. So you might imagine that, yes, that has to do a lot with just how exposed you are to faces that don't look like your face, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so in that case, you might imagine that if we, we haven't done this, we haven't explicitly tried to recruit members of minoritized groups, but we you might imagine that that effect just shouldn't be as present in there in these face-specific uh-huh. regions, right? And they right. shouldn't show the corresponding um, behavioral effect. So then I guess you would also see this cross-culturally, so as long as there's a majority group anywhere. Right, right. You might imagine like if you, for example, were to do these studies in Kenya, right, where the majority group and minority group are different, you should still see the effect just with, right, but uh-huh. the, the particular groups would differ in those cases. Yeah, I guess, I guess this is an analogy for how our, our brain operates kind of like a computer, because you even have that problem in facial recognition software. They they tend to be worse at mm-hmm. uh, at recognizing minority faces, but I don't think it's because it's just because of a lack of training data, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so you can imagine, like, right, the the life of a majority group member is right is a kind of training data set, right? And you're you're operating over like an impoverished data set, right? If, if you're now looking at 
um, faces of minor minoritized groups because you're just not getting as much data from those right huh. from that set. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. So you mentioned there are several lines of research going on in your lab. This is one of them. Yeah. So another line has been to look at um, the questions of how sort of so so by analogy when people have been interested in emotions, they've made some progress by saying, look, you can actually array emotions along two kind of main dimensions. Like if you do a factor analysis of emotion, right, it looks like there's sort of this positive negative dimension, there are good and bad emotions. Mm -hmm. And then there's a kind of arousal dimension, like how much fire in my belly do I feel when I feel that emotion, right? Anger, lots, sadness, not so much. Right. Um, and so when you look at like, how do you kind of arrange emotions like these two factors account for lots of the variance. So one of the things we've been trying to do is to, to ask the question of well, what, what kind of space could you generate for mental states? Like when I'm thinking about other people, right? And the vast number of things that could be happening inside your head, like are there actual factors that come out um, that might serve as kind of organizing principles in my mind as I try to make sense of other people? And, and that work is, I mean, it showed some things that are intuitive um, like positive negative continues to be an important dimension as I think about what you're feeling, like how good or bad that must feel is, is an important one. Um, but we've also found things like one way of arranging mental states are how kind of uniquely human are these experiences versus what kinds of things we might share with other animals, right? I mean, you've already sort of suggested like some of these basic emotions or things like hunger, right, might be things that I assume other animals feel um, mm -hmm. or experience in some way. But things like, you know, transcendent experience, like when I'm looking at a sunset or not. Um, right. So so we're trying to so they're almost like factor analyses, but we're actually using the brain itself. Right. And these voxel based patterns to give us the data that we then can do factor analysis over. Do you think you would find unique factors specifically for theory of mind or would this sort of just recreate like people's general range of emotional experiences so some people are better at identifying their own emotions than others so it would be like just a reflection of your own introspection oh that's so wait are you saying like you're you're that's an interesting like, question right you know if if i don't remember the the term for it but like there's some people who aren't very good at differentiating the their different emotions so they'll just say they won't say like i feel anxious versus sad versus versus whatever else they'll just say i feel bad and then and the more sort of emotional training you have i guess mm -hmm. uh, the more you can differentiate it into more specific terms uh clearly i'm not that great at it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah like so so some so there's one condition called alexithymia right where people are uh -huh. actually having a hard time labeling their emotions yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question and also someplace where we haven't really dived in. I mean, what would be interesting is if there were some people for whom there's really only, as you said, like one dimension or two dimensions of, of right, whereas maybe for other people, there's a much richer dimensional space. Uh -huh. So I guess, I guess there would be two competing hypotheses. One might be that the number of dimensions will be basically equal to the number of dimensions you have in your own introspection the other might be maybe it's less um mm -hmm. may, maybe it's it takes more cognitive effort to understand others feelings so there has to be some sort of like um dimension reduction going on there 
Right. And, you know, just because this is the way one has to do this kind of work, like we're asking people to, to generate answers to verbal labels, right? Like uh-huh. how angry would this person be? But as soon as you start using verbal labels, you're now in a world of kind of, kind of the, you know, the consensual use of these terms, right? And so part of my understanding of anger is my own understanding of like how I feel when I'm angry. But another big part of it is just how that word gets used in my linguistic community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in our case, we we don't, we don't know how much of this is being driven by people's own sense of their, how their mental states are organized or how much of this is being influenced by this kind of, okay, this is how as a linguistic community, we have carved up the the, the mental space, right? We use these words, mm-hmm. um, right? And so part of what we might be getting is just a reflection of kind of the pragmatics of those linguistic terms within English. Uh-huh. So the idea is that your ability to, uh, to identify someone, someone else's emotions, whether it's angry or sad or jealous or whatever, will be collapsed down onto on some, some sort of two-axis like valence arousal type map. Yeah, um, and in our case, we find at least, um, I mean, there's also this dimension of human non-human, which doesn't apply to the emotion case as much, right? So right. Um, like transcendence is something that I feel like only humans can do, right? But other animals don't. Right. That would be interesting to see how it changes because I think if you asked me a few years ago, do other animals get jealous? I would say probably not. And then learning mm. a lot more about like, mm. well, this one experiment mm. I showed you, but then also just the evolution of like sexual competition. I'm I'm much more apt to say that a lot of animals probably experience it now. Right. Right. That's interesting. I mean, one of the surprises from this work and is the kind of one can be surprised with in in, uh, in all factor analysis work, which is there's a factor that we actually have a hard time conceptualizing. And the, the closest we've come is that it has something to do with like effectiveness, like how much the mental state actually kind of has a, almost like a, like a demonstrable effect in the world, right? Like, like, like anger has more, like anger actually might like, translate into some action, right? Whereas transcendence, not so much. Um, right. And and that it's, it doesn't seem to be quite that, but it does seem to be something that we keep seeing. So that's that's as it as it might might be, right? There might be ways in which your mind organizes the the world that actually are very hard for you to con- consciously understand, uh-huh. right? Or get a, or 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 talk about. Is that related to the humanness dimension? Like something that's more actionable might be something you would expect to find in other animals, but if it's if it's just this thing, you sit back and you appreciate the beauty of the sunset then it's not mm. too actionable so it's more human yeah i mean in in right i mean the the beauty of factor analysis is that you're actually trying to like show that these like what factors are unrelated to each other right which are really right. independent factors so in this case like even though there is the kind of overlap you're talking about there seems to be some other organizing principle uh-huh. that that runs perpendicular to that that's really interesting this has been great jason hearing about your work thank you very much thanks for having me